Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we're speaking to Jason Ananda Josephson Storm, Professor of Religion and Chair of Science and Technology Studies at Williams College. And we're here to talk about disenchantment. Jason, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Much appreciated. Oh, it's a real pleasure. I'm a big fan of your show. So this is a real treat for me to be able to chat with you. Um, nice format. Now, disenchantment is uh, a big concept. It's one of these like mm-hmm. concepts of the times that we're all supposed to be living in. And um, you have questioned in print the, well, its its status as one of these words of the times, or at least maybe it, it's, it is important to our times, but doesn't mean exactly what people have thought it, it's meant. Uh, but before we even get into that maybe we should get to like a little bit of history of ideas as to why anyone thinks disenchantment is important right i assume max weber comes into the story yeah you could you could bring max weber into the story i mean we could work backward from a couple of different points so there are different versions of a broad narrative that looks something like in ye olden days, people were superstitious and believed in magic. Then some ruptural event happened, whether that's supposed to be the Protestant Reformation or the scientific revolution or industrialization or what have you. And then people got um, enlightened and they stopped believing in magic and spirits for perhaps depending on the category in play. Maybe they also stopped taking religion uh, seriously in the same way. Sometimes uh, the narrative conflates disenchantment and secularization. And you know now we're supposed to be living in a sort of sparkling world full of clear, quote unquote, rationality in which nobody believes in you know spirits or uh, magic anymore. And there are versions of that narrative. And what is interested in the, um, so I've written a book, The Myth of Disenchantment, which was an attempt to kind of trace out the history of that narrative. How did we get the idea that our world was supposed to be disenchanted? And what's more, if you push into it, there was a geographical narrative tied into that, a kind of abyssal line. There was a part of the world, mostly Europe and North America, that was supposed to be disenchanted, and the rest of the world kind of dropped off the map. And one of the things that uh, drew me to questioning the narrative was you know, doing anthropological fieldwork in Japan and then going back to the US and my uh, uh, hanging out with some uh, folks who are very much... So my grandmother was a famous anthropologist herself who became convinced uh, of the reality of spirits and hung out with uh, a bunch of people from mostly Europe and North America, but they all kind of believed in spirits together. And so one might wonder how true that narrative was and how true that division between a disenchanted quote-unquote West and enchanted East um, held. And then if you do look at sociological evidence, again, it depends on what term you're using, but if you use, this isn't my preferred term, but if there's a great um, statistical data around quote-unquote paranormal belief, and if you look there, it looks like something like 75% of people in contemporary North America believe in quote-unquote paranormal phenomena. And if you look at Europe, it's roughly equivalent, although the exact percentages of things are different, and that that's independent of church attendance. So it's independent of basic statistics about quote unquote, secularization, people who don't identify with any religion, in fact, as I argue in the book, are more often more likely to believe in spirits and ghosts and magic. And so uh, that whole narrative just doesn't seem to hold. And then if you look specifically at, say, your primary category is spirit belief, something like 83.3% of Americans believe in either spirits, demons, or angels. So it doesn't look to me across certain definitions of the term uh, of, in, of disenchantment that we are disenchanted. Now, of course, 
the question becomes, well, how do we get that idea? And it turns out that there have been various iterations of, of this so-called narrative but they're not all exactly the same. And one of the things that, as, I, as an academic, I sort of tediously piece out in detail in the book is the difference between, let's say, Max Weber's version and J.G. Frazier's version and Schiller's version, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, a version of the disenchantment narrative took uh, dominance in Europe and uh, Western Europe and North America during the 19th century. And it did so in the exact same time period uh, that there was a popular revival of spiritualism, theosophy, and occultism. So that made me sort of even more doubt that narrative, or at least want to complexify it, especially when I discovered, and I spent a lot of archival work looking through people's letters and uh, diaries, et cetera, that a lot of the big shots who theorized disenchantment often hung out with folks in what we would call the occult milieu or the esoteric, the world of esotericism. Like Weber himself, right? Like Weber himself. Yeah. yeah. So Max Weber, as far as I can reconstruct from looking at his diary entries and letters, first starts to use the word Entzauberung, what we usually translate as disenchantment, just after having hung out at a neo-pagan commune uh, in Ascona, Switzerland, yep. and having read a novel that was a thinly fictionalized account of a group of occult practitioners known as the Munich Cosmic Circle, who had their own theories of magic. So whatever Weber meant by Entzauberung, and, and I try and tease that out in some detail, he definitely knew that many of his contemporaries believed in magic and in spirits. But there's another wrinkle that I think your listeners might especially like, which is there's a way in which the narrative of disenchantment, the myth of disenchantment, is itself an old folkloric trope with a wrinkle. So for instance, in Chaucer's uh, The Wife of Bath, uh, it, it claims, you know, the fairies were here, but no man can see fairies no more. Not only that, but uh, there is many a spell book uh, that begins with magic otherwise lost is here being recovered. You know, this is the true Solomon magic, Solomonic magic that has otherwise been lost, etc. So that describes or stages a version of disenchantment only to uh, articulate its return. And it right. turns out that many of the occult figures of the 19th century, Helena Blavatsky, for instance, uh, but also people like that are a little less well-known, like Ludwig Klages and others, described disenchantment even as they were claiming to bring back the missing magic. So it seems that those two things, a sociological narrative and as we might say folkloric trope, were conjoined. And then I have an extra bit that you as a classicist may be able to help me out with a little bit more, which is that one of the threads that I had to cut out of the book for space reasons is that one can argue that the line of this earlier, let's say, folkloric disenchantment could go back to figures like Plutarch and Cicero. Because famously, Plutarch in his uh, De Facto Oraculorum, I don't know the Greek name, I, I can read a little Latin, but I can't read Greek, you know, describes the departure of the oracles. And, um, you know, basically the idea is that pagan oracles are no longer communicating in the same way. And now he's doing this as himself, as you know from, from your episodes in the podcast better than I do, as himself uh, associated with the Oracle of Delphi. So it's not the case that oracles are, are not real, but that they are no longer speaking to us. I gather that some classicists have noted that Cicero precedes him in this, but in only a couple sentences. This is relevant because already in the 16th century and perhaps earlier, Europeans, English speakers, were referring back to Plutarch. And so I found an example, for instance, tracing the thread backward. Edmund Spencer, uh, famous for uh, the Fairy Queen, remarks, all oracles surcease and enchanted spirits 
that were wont to delude people thenceforth held their peace, end quote. And he's referencing Plutarch, but he's describing a, a kind of version of a disenchantment narrative that's not denying the reality of spirits, not denying perhaps the existence of demons. And we've had the shift from daimon to demon already uh, by Spencer's period, but then describing it, you know, a, a disenchantment narrative alongside famous works he's promoting and discussing fairy belief. And I think as far as historians can reconstruct, you know, he's connected up to a Neoplatonic milieu himself and has his own magical project, etc. So what I didn't do for reasons of space in the book was keep tracing those threads between Plutarch and Edmund Spencer right. to think about all the intermediate steps. I'm sure figures like Eusebius and others uh, anyway, there, there are a lot of intermediate connections and paraphrases of that. You yeah, know, uh, I in think the intermediate periods. that is that is a fascinating project to find that. Um, two things I would add to what you've just said, which yeah. one of which might be a, a step in that history of ideas. Um, one thing is that that another way of looking at that folkloric motif is as yeah. a uh, what I call the now revealed for the first time uh, trope right. of the spoken right. esoteric, right? Which is where you. You just say, it's been hidden till now, but now for the first time, you can it can be revealed. And this is very, very typical of occultism, right? Blavatsky yeah, does exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. But so does like The Secret, if you're familiar with that little gem of published esotericism, which is basically repackaged new thought, self-help type stuff. But, but packaged as wisdom that has been kept secret by the sages of all ages until now, because I guess modern people are special or something, we can now just reveal it in the form of a cheap paperback which yeah totally yeah. and in that respect it seems central it seems a variation or or central to some of the central tropes that of quote-unquote esotericism that you've been exploring in that it's yeah esotericism revealed i think you're exactly right and then their narratives about the spirits being gone but really here you know they can be brought back or you know the people who are really special can see them and other people can't right and one of the things that tracing the intellectual history, especially the 19th century, which is really my period of primary training, was really 1600 to the present, but really 19th century originally. By the 19th century, anyway, there's an interchange between scholars and occultists. So Blavatsky is reading Friedrich Mueller. Mueller is disagreeing with Blavatsky, but then, you know, or, or there are figures like J.G. Frazier, whose Golden Bough provides a very portable version of this. He describes it literally as magic, religion, science. But then his golden bow is read by Aleister Crowley, who mines the golden bow for spells. Yep. Uh, but then, you know, and you, there's a lot of back and forth anyway between them. So in that respect, these worlds often held apart, the scholarly milieu and the, let's say, occult milieu, um, turn out to be at least quite entangled. You know, and you can keep carrying that forward, basically, to the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, whoever. And, anecdotally you know. speaking, the, the most popular grimoire in the modern English-speaking world among practicing ceremonial magicians is... Um, Hans Dieter Betz's translation of the Greek magical papyri. And, <laughs> yeah, awesome. I didn't know that, but that's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, based on my field research, that seems to be the case. It's a very, very popular spell book and people are really concerned to get the proper. So every time there's talk of a new edition or like maybe coming back to the same stuff, but including more Egyptian material, the magic people go crazy. They're like, yes, finally, we can find out about this, this particular detail of this ritual and this kind of stuff. So, which was not yeah. what uh, Professor Betts intended. Um, yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention about that history of ideas, which might be of interest, is I feel like in a lot of what you might call disenchanted Protestant stuff in from the early modern period till now, you get a very a, a particular take on the idea of that illo tempore view of history. So, yeah, if you're a biblical literalist. 
you have to believe all kinds of stuff. Like Noah can build this magic boat that can hold like all the animals in the world and the prophets can make stuff happen just by saying it and God can like send down lightning and all this kind of re- very miraculous stuff can happen. The, the Red Sea parts. Mm. But that stuff obviously doesn't happen anymore. So Protestants and especially yeah. kind of a, a hard-nosed sort of Protestant who really have a strong discourse of rationalism and not miracle-mongering, right? Often in opposition to Catholics who are seen as miracle-mongering crypto-pagans. They say, well, it used to be that way, but it's not that way anymore. So you that's kind of like a Protestant version of that the great god Pan is dead discourse from Plutarch that maybe yeah, and, is maybe yeah. through reading church fathers like Augustine, who, you know, is very kind of anti-magic and so on and so forth, rereading them in a Protestant lens. And that might be a kind of mutation of that idea that comes into the modern world. And then you have yeah, to- like, totally. And and in fact, yeah, it, be, it becomes this f- formulation, the cessation of the charismata, which to me parallels the discourse on the cessation of the oracles. So, I mean, right. I, mean I guess, exactly. So th- there's a narrative of that within Protestant circles, except then you have the Pentecostals who are t- arguing in contrast that the charismata have not vanished. And, you know, yeah. what do we see in huge chunks of contemporary America, but a revival of kind of charismatic gifts and, you know, so um, this is... at various points in time. So it, you know, continues yeah. to be ongoing. And so one of the other things that, that that happens if you do this intellectual history very closely, you know, as I was trying to do, compared and contrasted with social history, is that not only is disenchantment continue being staged over and over and over again, and that, that these narratives of recovery, you know, there's ups and downs, basically ebb and flow, but also there's subtle mutations and changes in the phenomena being discussed. So, you know, what a spirit meant to the spirit to a pneumatic uh, evangelical or what the category of spirits meant for spiritualism versus what it meant in Swedenborg. I mean, so I'm not arguing that when I say disenchantment is a myth, I'm not arguing that nothing ever changed, but rather that as broad um, strokes history, it just doesn't doesn't fit fit the case. You know, so there are a lot of changes within that field. Um, and one of the other ones, of course, is, you know, we might get the rise of notions of quote-unquote psychical powers, or we get the paranormal, which replaces older terms like the preternatural, but although having a very, very similar meanings, but slightly different, you know, of investigative strategies. So it's not necessarily stasis, uh, definitely not stasis, but rather a series of sort of parallel shifts, you know, in, in different sectors of society. And and so what I'm interested in, what I'm interested in is that phenomenon, kind of. Um, mm-hmm. And you get a pluralization in the present moment in some urban centers or cosmopolitan centers that look different. So, you know, one of the things when people ask me, well, why do some people think this stuff is silly or whatever? It's because actually, if you look at the quote unquote paranormal beliefs, people don't tend to share paranormal beliefs. And people who have one set of paranormal beliefs tend to often have a reason to discount other people's paranormal beliefs. So the people who believe in the reality of demons then think that aliens are just demons. And the people who think that they've been contacted by aliens are like, there's no such thing as demons. And so rather than uh, an absence of belief characterizing our current moment, what you get is actually a proliferation of different kinds of belief systems, basically, or or different sets of beliefs. So taking an anthropological or a scholarly perspective, you can look at all those beliefs and say, there's something structurally similar here. Exactly. You you believe in unseen entities that can in special circumstances appear and mess with you and you believe in unseen entities that in special circumstances can appear and mess with you but you call them demons you call them ufos i i see a similarity here even if you don't right yeah and at times that similarity is important and at times the differences are worth tracing it depends Mm. on what kind of generalizations you want to make it really matters to them 
but I'm just yeah. saying as a yeah. as a you know right, but as a scholar, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you might you might um, take you take that step back and say, huh, there's something similar here. There's a structure going on here. I like yeah. it. Now, I guess your field work in Japan might yes. have led you to some of this way of thinking because Japan is notorious. Well, the U.S. is the other big exception to Weber's predictions, but Japan is pretty notorious because Japan is the most ultra modern place you're ever going to find whatever gadget whatever kind of accoutrement of ultra cutting edge modern ways of life you might want to think about in terms of modernity you find it in japan but they never had that whole kind of that means the spirits are dead moment as far as i'm aware so you you'll be like you get like a high-powered ceo on his way to work but he like does a little offering at the shrine to the fox god on the way to work because that's what you do and the this is cool. This is, there's no problem, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. So there, there are two pieces of that, that, or actually three things I'll pull out of what you just said. In the first instance, you're right that um, in contemporary Japan, there is by and large not an idea that, there's an, that, that there would be an incompatibility between the technological and spirit or quote unquote magical belief. Um, in fact, it's even amplified such that you have people, you know, you can get talismans that function as USB drives, whose primary function, you know, is both supposed to magically help you or, or you know, um, yeah, let's say magically help you clear your computer of viruses and demons at the same time, you know, or whatever. Or, you know, there's a god of astronauts uh, who's, a, you know, a computer um, shrine where, you know, people who, who are launching astronauts, you know, Sony will go there. So we'll send somebody there before they launch a new ast- satellite into orbit or what have you. But that said, there was a period in the 19th century where um, the Japanese state decided that belief in superstition, and they translated this with the word meishin, which was a newly created term. They basically back translated from uh, abaglauba, but they um, became this new word, uh, meishin, which they thought was incompatible with modernity. Superstitions are incompatible with modernity. And one of the things about the narrative of modernity, because one of the things I was interested in my book was how this myth of disenchantment is a real myth. People often believe that to be modern, you have to not believe in spirits or magic. And, but modernity is almost always located elsewhere. So when you're in Japan, modernity was, you know, what they imagined, the, you know, how super rational London was in the moment or whatever, whereas people in London at that exact moment were table turning like crazy or whatever. And they were imagining in London that it was maybe, I don't know, New York that was super rational while the theosophists were launching theosophy. You know, So there's a lot of this exchange going on. So in the 19th century, the Japanese state tried to purge superstitions and they succeeded in downgrading belief in a certain cross-section of what we might call the supernatural or, or, you know, of invisible entities. The thing is that the ones that they focused their attention on were the demonic entities. The ones, so they, they made a distinction between quote unquote protected religion guaranteed by the protected by freedom of religion uh, in the Japanese constitution and superstitions, which were backward and, and against modernity. Um, I explore this in my first book, the invention of religion in Japan for listeners who might want to check it out. Uh, and so what it meant was that, for example, belief in uh, angels, you know, oh, that's religion or belief in, the deities of particular shrines, that's religion, that's protected. But belief in Tengu, which are uh, long-nosed winged goblins, the state had published things that said, do not believe in Tengu. Believing in Tengu is backward superstition. But the same state a generation earlier had exercised Tengu. So right. there's a, it's a different kind of exorcism. It's now an exorcism by way of denying their existence. And one of the things that was interesting to me uh, in the historical work that, that fit in that book was that then you get people writing back to the government. They're like, you told us that Tengu no longer exists, but my wife's being hassled by one. What do you want me to do about it? And so it, it you know, then they ended up 
producing a niche market of a new set of um, of practitioners of exorcism who then come in to fill in that economic niche and then produce a certain kind of practices that didn't exist before. And the third wrinkle, just to connect the two projects together, there was a section I didn't fit in the myth book and isn't in my first book, but I published elsewhere um, as an article, is that Japanese intellectuals in the 19th century traveling to Western Europe occasionally encountered not what they were anticipating, which was a disenchanted world, but one full of people engaging in psychical research, spiritualism, etc. And there's this whole Occidentalism, that's what I write about as, but you get this idea that the central feature of the West is that the West is overflowing with invisible forces, whether those are x-rays or uh, radiation or spirits or psychical powers or whatever. And so there's a small stratum of literature of these thinkers who I translate and write about elsewhere in, in a separate article, but they saw a very different version of the West. In the same moment that European travelers to Japan were like, whoa, a cult Japan. That was literally a book from the time period. I've got you know, it. Early, one of the early books on, yeah, right. So you have this weird kind of cross-directional encounter with interesting uh, implications for the history of what will become esotericism as a global phenomena. Once we're no, no longer, you know, outside the trajectory of the movement that you're describing. That said, one of the things that's interesting to me is that there were, you know, uh, as you've noted, there, there are exchanges between Europe and Asia even before the 19th century. After the 19th century, there's a hyper amplification of those. So theosophists, for instance, bring some of the first yoga teachers from India to the United States and or their, their texts written by, quote unquote, Arthur Avalon, which seems to have been a British dude, plus some Bengali dudes, probably, who are then mixing uh, things from historical Western esoteric source, sources with forms of what we would call Hinduism, etc. So that, that all gets amplified and ratcheted up by about a million degrees in the 19th century, along with some you know, totally Orientalist inventions of Asian beliefs that never really existed in Asia and the collapsing together of disparate parts of the world like Egypt and, I don't know, Japan being stuck together or what have you. Yeah. All that said, there were earlier exchanges too. And so one of the things that's interesting too is that you can trace these threads of belief in exchanges uh, across the Eurasian continent. And, and just to mention a source that uh, listeners to your podcast might find interesting, if you come across David Gordon White's Diamonds Are Forever, the Eurasian pandemonium, he's interested in how notions of epitropaic rituals to banish certain kinds of spirits are often, we're often, he wants to argue, exchanged. He's a Indologist by specialization across the Silk Road, including names of demons, for instance, mm. in periods of time in which India and Western Europe thought of themselves very differently and even separated by, you know, obviously the, you know, Silk Road travels, et cetera. Now, David Gordon White, his evidence for, for some of his data is a little bit fudgy, but some of his stuff is good. I think that there's some exchange there. Yeah. And definitely there are kind of demonic pantheons that move but across cultures that are, even when Europe is defining itself in terms of Christendom, there it's sometimes importing demons from India. And even when the Islamic hate world is functioning as an intermediary, sometimes things get transmitted all the way to India. And from there, based on some of my work, you know, you get the appearances of figures in Japan during the period of time, even when Japan is supposed to be closed and is largely closed, but you have these odd references to things that are being drawn from much farther, you know, to the West, et cetera. So that said, all that stuff ratchets up like crazy in the 19th century and, and down to the present moment. Yeah. yeah. So in our present moment, living as we do in the disenchanted West, <laughs> I wonder if it's worth going back again, historically, to the 19th century and maybe talking yeah. about a few of the different, very influential disenchantment narratives. Because I think a bit like with the work of Freud, you needn't have read him 
to be thinking in terms of ideas that he kind of invented. So in the same way, yeah. you don't need to have read Weber or uh, Fraser to just know that we live in a world where superstition is old hat and we're in scientific land now, or maybe religion plus science, you know, religion at least is not superstition, whatever. So let's talk about Weber and um, whoever yeah. else you think is relevant. Yeah, so um, Weber is in certain respects at a, you know, writing at the beginning of the 20th century is a, a late point in a, in a kind of arc within Germany. He's, there's a, he's got a hundred year legacy basically behind him uh, within Germany, at least. So one of the key thinkers, for instance, that Max Weber has been influenced by there's is um, Friedrich Schiller, who has this very portable poem, um, usually translated as the gods of Greece, where he describes a, a literally de-godded nature. And that formulation and ungodded nature, actually, that, that Schiller poem is, is referenced by Weber. It's referenced by Freud. It's re referenced also by Fraser. actually, I think, has an tra English travert translation. I forget. It's like that poem floats all over the place. Schiller's not alone in this. This, you know, we, we could talk more about why this happens, but there's a moment in sometimes called the pantheism dispute in German philosophy, and an argument about the, the legacy of Spinoza and uh, that, that leads toward in which people like Jacobi and Hegel and a whole bunch of folks weigh in and start to become concerned with what they see of as a both literal secularization. And so this is where the word secularization is first formulated, but also where they start to talk about, um, in Schiller, at least in a kind of poetic way, that there was something that happened before secularization. So, you know, the, the religion is being, they, they meant very literally, a church property is being seized and assimilated into the state and et yeah. cetera, et cetera. Um, but also kind of, there has been a depaganization, which he, they see as somehow ongoing and they start to, and there seems to be sort of like almost a mournful or tragic accent to that, which is picked up by especially romantic poets in the era. But anyway, all that said, then there's an intermediate phenomena in England. And I, you know, I talk about uh, J.G. Frazier, but I think for, for listeners who like the formulation, the disenchantment of the world, which is probably the version that we've most likely heard, that basically goes back to Weber, um, his Entzauberung der Welt. But, uh, and so to talk a little bit about how Weber comes to it, Max Weber, you know, a famous German uh, sociologist and economic historian. What you uh, listeners may or may not know is that he starts his life basically writing dry as dirt economic history. Yeah. He has a kind of breakdown, which people speculated about its causes. Uh, there's a, a standing theory by a guy named Joachim Radkow that it's a was sexual in nature. But anyway, he starts getting depressed. And then um, I think it was just really the work. I think it was just trying to do economics when he didn't want to fucking <laughs> do economics. Do <laughs> agrarian bore, economics, two volumes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Doing exactly. 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 You could think of a lot of reasons that one would have a breakdown. But in any case, Weber starts to get really interested in questions of religion and religious history. Mm. And one of his master categories in general has been a, a question about what he calls calls rationalization, which he's interested in initially in his, some of his writings about music, but he's interested in systematization and all the different ways in which things might become rationalized. And what, what he ultimately produces is various typologies where that rationalization doesn't mean one thing, but can mean intellectualization or systematization or professionalization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in that, am I going maybe, to go detail? Maybe it's worth yeah. mentioning, sorry to interrupt. Maybe it's worth yeah. mentioning the very important role it plays for him in capitalization right so this this yeah. thing capitalism mm -hmm. which he's one of the major yeah. theorists of he says like yeah. you know in the old days economic interchange and stuff had a lot going on that might have yeah. more to do with family might have more to do with gift giving might have to do with all these kind of things not in capitalism yeah, capitalism right. is defined by rationalization in the sense of like 
instrumentalization of time, instrumentalization of human beings into this new thing. Um, so rationalization yeah, yeah, totally. in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And then the other big thing that Weber was concerned with and what made him not a Marxist, even though he read Marx, mm. was bureaucratization. So the ultimate form of rationality that Weber was worried about, and you can understand, dude is living in Germany, if you, if anybody, I, you know, I, I live in Germany, I, I love it. But if you understand, you know, if you've lived in Germany even today, you'll note the proliferation of paperwork that is absolutely insane. And Weber was interested in how bureaucratic rationalities come to take over and absorb other kinds of things. So why do you want to do that? You need a form. Oh, you didn't check the right box. You know, you're kicked out or whatever. So even more more than he was worried about, because he he's a very moderate around certain kinds of capitalism, he was very interested in or very fearful of a kind of bureaucratization that was coming to absorb everything uh, under its purview. And uh, had, he thought kind of had um, run off the rails, had its own kind of rationalizing processes built into it, etc. And so in that context, Weber then, as I alluded to this uh, a little bit earlier, is you know dealing with some psychological issues, thinking about religion, doing these other things, takes a trip to Italy, comes back goes and hangs out in a neo-pagan commune, which is a kind of a health retreat. And then he starts to think about history in a new way. And the phrase he turns to, this is this poetic phrase, uh, and it gets backwritten into earlier works. So it wasn't right. in the first edition of the Protestant ethic, but it gets, but he gets, he, he loved the phrase once he'd kind of stumbled upon it. He first uses it in an essay on uh, interpretive so uh, the categories of interpretive sociology, I forget the exact title, but close to that, where he's fairly explicit. He's reading Frazier and he has this idea that actually early, what we would call early um, magical practice is rational. So there's a lot of misreadings of Weber. The, the misreading is that the Entsauberung of world, this is what is being desaubered, you know, is irrationality. And that's not what he thinks is the case. He thinks that um, primitive peoples uh, engaged in practices that are that he you know, called magi uh, sometimes, which were themselves instrumentally rational. So that's not exactly what he means by Ensauburn uh, Develt. Literally, we would translate it as a de-sorcering of the world yeah. or something like that. But I want to argue, and then this is um, where I part ways with a certain group of a lot of Weber scholars, a lot of Weber scholars want to read one of his lectures as if it's this is the defining point where he talks about it. Weber gave a series of vocation lectures. He's um, in, in Munich, and he gives a, a lecture called, you know, uh, translated off into sciences vocation. And in that context, he sort of plays with this language of disenchantment. But actually, in the he works this out more systematically in a bunch of other places. And if you look at where he's working it out, what I think Weber had in mind was the idea not that magic was going to be completely eliminated or that all meaning was going to completely vanish. But in part, what he ha he says, you know, for instance, that the Puritans are central figures in the Entsauberung der Welt, but also they continue to believe in uh, witches or the persecuted witches. Mm. So what he's interested in is the demonization of certain kinds of ritual practices. And so uh, Weber often talks about things in the terms of the formation of spheres. And so um, in this case, he, he seems to be suggesting the formation of something like a magic sphere or an enchanted sphere where certain practices are demarcated off from other spheres of life, where it's no longer considered religion, it's no longer, or maybe not, or certain rituals are no longer considered religion or science or whatever, but are now located in a now newly demonized uh, magical sphere, perhaps. Um, he doesn't say magic sphere, but he says something close to that. Um, and moreover, he's interested in how then a whole bunch of different ways that we might think of the world as being special, extra mundane, get located in that newly demarcated um, 
uh, domain of magic or, or domain of sorcery, whatever your preferred term is. And so he's interested in how divination practices, for instance, move from being you know mainstream to being demonized, we might say, or located only in this sphere of activity. Yeah. I mean, he also has ideas about confidence around knowledge, and he thinks that, you know, that the irony is that people today think that they know everything, even though they knowledge is much more fragmented than it used to be, and all, all these other things. And if you realize that Weber was not only writing this out of a new pain commune, but then he went and hung out with some of the people that were written about in a book of magic, this you know, cosmic circle, and particularly this famous, very complicated figure, Stefan Georga, who was a German poet and um, esotericist, uh, more or less explicitly. And Weber likes him, but then doesn't like him and formulates some of his early language around charisma uh, and the rationalization of charisma in reference to this guy. So Weber's wife, Marianne, much more religious than, than Mac, she cleans up his works after his death and she writes one of the most influential early accounts of his life. She truncates some of his letters, for instance. So Weber in a letter says, I'm unmusical as far as religion is concerned. And yeah. then, and, and, and Marian ends the letter there, but the actual letter is kind of, he, he talks about how much he wants not just to be musical, but to have a mystic experience. Yeah. And his friends describe him as, you know, other uh, independent folk yearning for a kind of new mystical experience. Now, some other figures in the history of the narrative of disenchantment don't connect mysticism to these things. They keep them as hold them as autonomous categories. But Weber, uh, there's some evidence, connects mysticism up to uh, a kind of um, charisma, mana, magic, sorcery, all get bundled together in some way. And so in that respect, anyway, so I've just complicated the narrative about the received narrative. But this formulation, and Sovereign Develop gets translated into English by Talcott Parsons as the disenchantment of the world. And this is part of why Weber gets big. He gets big in the United States. It fits some agenda that Talcott Parsons has. Weber was not as big in Germany in that moment until he got big in the U.S. first. But Talcott Parsons' formulation, sometimes just taken as a poetical synonym for secularism, sometimes not, proliferates starting mid-20th century. And then, you know, people start riffing off of that. Meanwhile, within Germany um, and the German-speaking world, it goes on to influence the figures who inspired my book, namely Adorno and Horkheimer, who were interested in Weber and then tried to take or interpret what he was saying in a very different direction or slightly different direction uh, when they wrote Dialectic of Enlightenment. So it, it has a particular kind of half-life, we might say, or, you know, a legacy, we might say a legacy. The other wrinkle is that Klagas, who Ludwig Klagas, who is one of the key members of the Munich Cosmic Circle, who Weber's writing about, also loves the phrase, uh, the disenchantment of the world. And he puts it in a couple of his works, which are Western esoteric uh, philosophy. So, you know, that that phrase continues to reverberate on. And so if you ask people today uh, what the disenchantment of the world uh, means, they, they might say, oh, yeah, people don't believe in magic anymore in the West, or people are not religious anymore, or some analog. People don't believe in spirits, don't, have an, don't believe in animism anymore either. And so part of what I'm interested in is kind of excavating that narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing they might say, they might employ a another mythical ideal type that is very powerful today in the West, namely science. Yeah. Understood as a body of like a belief system, right? And be like, yeah. well, we don't believe in that stuff anymore. We believe in science now, right? Yeah, totally. Right. And that's why the Fraserian formulation has another, because to take a step back, Fraser then has a, a formulation that, I, as I mentioned earlier, is magic, religion, science. Fraser himself has his own wrinkles in his own thought because 
There are ways in which he thinks of science as a return to magic, and there, there are hints of that, although he doesn't mostly go there. But a version of that formulation, which has also an important analog in the works of the French thinker, Auguste Comte, who famously formulated what will become positivism. For Comte, it's religion, but which he identifies as fetishism or animism. Then he has metaphysics, which is he identifies with philosophy. And then he has science, positivism, which is going to be fully scientific. So weirdly, it's a disenchantment that means that philosophy will no longer exist in its most telling formulation. We could note that August Gomp also has a return when he later formulated a positivist church. He thought that that was recovering the good part of fetishism, uh, which was going to reconnect us with nature. And uh, I've written about that anyway, not also in this book, but that I had to publish elsewhere. But all, all that is to say, one of the key things that's happening is that a new notion of science is, is, is being articulated in the European uh, imagination. There's a bifurcation here, though, significantly between the English-speaking world and much of the rest of Western Europe. In, for example, German, uh, Wissenschaft covers a range of things, including not just natural sciences. And in French, a science also has a wider semantic range than the English science. Uh, so there are a bunch of things that we could talk about in terms of that, um, particularly their watershed moments. Uh, Willem Ewell, whose name is spelled misleadingly compared to his pronunciation, coins the word scientist in, I forget, the 1830s. Yeah. Uh, and you start to get, uh, by the 1860s and 70s, the idea in English-speaking sources that religion and science are in conflict. Yeah. And this appears famously in Draper. It's, it's a kind of mythic narrative. It's a narrative that Draper is using actually to advance his particular version of Protestantism. Yeah. The stakes are basically to knock out the Catholics. Yeah. Um, but once you have the idea that religion and science are opposites, there also be, tends to be boundary policing. So, you know, you're, is this religion, is this science? And then you get a lot of people trying to stage their reconciliation. And the intersection between religion and science, the religious sciences or then often occult sciences or spiritual sciences become a significant place where folks turn to the language of magic or uh, pushed into that location. For instance, people, you know, they get accused of pseudoscience or they get accused of not being properly religious and being superstitious, etc. So part of this history is totally about the formulation of a particular idea of science. And then the further extra wrinkle that I begin the book with is, and then many people who or famous, I don't know, saints of modern science, if we want to extend that formulation, often were just as interested in esoteric beliefs as their peers. And so Marie Curie was doing uh, seances to try and figure out whether they were real or not. Thomas Edison had his famous ghost machine. Uh, Wolfgang Pauli uh, and qu uh, quantum theorists had this notion of mysticism that they were drawing on uh, thinkers in what we would broadly call the new age milieu when they're trying to figure out all the weird stuff that quantum physics was determining. Yeah. So, you know, you could stage it at many different points. And so, so there's a myth of science as well and an idea about science and what it implies and what it includes and what it doesn't and its relationship to these categories, which, you know, has implications far beyond whatever science has demonstrated or hasn't demonstrated, which we, we could have a separate conversation about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can historically, historic history of ideasically, you can trace yeah. those guys back to Newton, of course. Um, yeah. And he, but, you know, again, you have and to earlier. be yeah. specific. Yeah. He's, he's regarding his mathematical work as maybe, at least he's publishing it in a very separate format from his speculations about the meaning of the Book of Revelations and his alchemy. These are kind of, for him, they're compartmentalized, but he's doing them all. But then, and then go back to John Dee from him. Yeah, or you could go, the other one that I look at in the book again is uh, Francis Bacon. So, you yeah. know, it turns out often described as the father of modern science, but as we know, hugely interested in magic, used the word magic, wanted to, re he wants to take experiments from magic. 
But yeah, so I mean, we, we have that in Francis Bacon. You know, there's this weird myth that Giordano Bruno was a murder to science. But as we know, Classic. you know, he part of, yeah, the back projection of a notion of science that, that would have been an anachronism to him. So, you know, we have this all over the place. And yeah, let's see. So what's the what's the key Bacon quote? Um, well, for the Persian magic, which was the secret literature of their kings, was an application of the contemplation and observation of nature. As he goes on to say, I must stipulate magic, which has long been used in a bad sense, be restored again to its ancient and honorable meaning. For among the Persians, magic was taken for a sublime wisdom and the knowledge of the universal harmony of things. That's Bacon and the Advance of Learning. So, you know, so he clearly saw his project as a kind of de-esotericized magic, I will argue. He wanted to make it public. He thought that the problem was that people were being secretive about their experiments and what they were doing. Yeah. But he thought that that magic worked. And to be fair, people have wanted to say that, that those who've noticed it before have wanted to say, oh, yeah, but he just meant natural magic. But not really, because if you read some of the works that, that are less widely commented on um, his Silva Silvarum, I forget the exact title, but I think that's close to that. He talks about a nature that's animated by spirits, by Numa, and, and that they, they have their, they're, they're appetitive spirits. They have their own things. I mean, Bacon, you know, Francis Bacon has been rightly criticized for a particular metaphor, namely tying nature to the rack in order to extract her knowledge. Yep. But built into that metaphor is an animated nature. It's not a disanimated sure. nature. Well, and, and he clearly seemed to think that that was the case. And too. So, if, you, yeah. if you want to find the origin of tying nature to the rack to discover her secrets, you look to early alchemy, Zosimus of Panopolis, yeah. you know, you torture nature as well as, well as yeah, I know it's, being yeah. part of her and, and her servant and her devoted disciple. You also torture the hell out of her and dismember her and chop her up into little bits and all that kind of stuff. That yeah. that metaphor, the, the meta- metaphor, which is maybe played out in its most grisly literal sense by the like Victorian era vivisectionist, right? Yeah. Is going back to the alchemists. For sure. Yeah. And, and, and so and then and one key point too, just to kick us back to the present moment, a lot of folks hope that if you, you know, redivinize nature, we would be able to solve problems like global warming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is that there are people who have had fully um, spiritualized or divinized accounts of nature have often also been caught in the logics of capitalism and exploitation and yeah. or scientific experimentation that presume that if you it was worth it to torture nature to get things out of her or whatever. So it's it's not on its own enough to solve things. You know, I'm not, I, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, so. if you, you know, people, there's people who still think that if we just, instead of worshiping these patriarchal god figures, we just worship goddesses, we'd be nicer. But I mean, the Romans loved their goddesses yeah. and they were not nice yeah. people. Yeah, not nice people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so I want to argue then that, you know, not only have we not been disenchanted, but that, you know, as I put in the book, neither enchantment nor disenchantment is necessarily redemptive. And that may be something that your listeners might or might not appreciate hearing, but maybe it depends on what their motives are uh, in, in following your absolutely excellent podcast. You could, because you could be a total, and, and from my perspective, that one of the things I'm deeply embedded in post-colonial theory, and one of the things that, you know, has struck me is that you can be a colonizing enchanter, or, or you could be a, a anti-colonial, uh, you know, disenchanter, or vice versa. So I, I think that the facile uh, equation between, for instance, esotericism and Nazis is no good. The, the Nazis were not particularly esoterical, though you can find a couple, but mostly you know, they, their main religious references were to quote unquote positive Christianity. Well, I'll, I'll throw that out there. So, you know, not all people who believe in magic are Nazis. That's definitely true. But then on the other hand, you know, just believing in magic alone doesn't necessarily make you a happy, fun person. And we can come up with plenty of counterexamples. So, you know, people forget that Hermes is a trickster very mm-hmm. often, you know, 
but uh, the trickster, the god of thieves and and uh, liars, isn't necessarily going to be all about um, unicorns and rainbows, and he might have a dark yeah. side. Yeah, totally. Jason, stay esoteric. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>